Miss Macintosh, my darling, part 53, chapter 53.2. And with such indistinct ambivalences as these forever harassing him, barking like an old dog among the shadows, how could he not be baffled, even in his most lucid moments of self-investigation, when everything should have been quite clear, when he would stop for a moment to reassure himself of his own hollow existence, remembering what had always been his withdrawn attitudes and predilections toward unconfused serenity, his biases which should have distinguished him and set him apart? For Perone, though one would like to think well of him, to speak no evil of the dead, and be quite, had been quite blasé, blatant and unthinking, caring for nothing except those discords which would have deafened Joaquin, such loud racetrack music that it should fall over the waves, or music of shrieking fog horns, or music of horse hooves racing upon a clouded track. Peron, protected by his indifference, had been as deaf to higher music as Joaquin had been, in his own silent way, musical, walking as in a shower of ethereal prisms, measuring his footsteps then as now, pausing at each climax. And Perone had been as egotistical and self-centered as Joachim had been selfless, having no center of life, no point of return, and not visionary as Joachim had been, and blind to the opium lady's beautiful and enigmatic face, which Joachim had seen in every cloud formation or rippling shadow. Some old crone with hairs growing out of her chin, some old horse-laced creature walking with a long rope long lope Perone would have loved undoubtedly as if she were venus rising from the sea in a gray streaked dawn joaquim had loved the symmetrical disposition of parts the equal chambers he had feared old age and its advancing footsteps and its signs which are like those of ravagement he had feared sudden death as he had feared an accident to himself or his identical brother the least irrational event the slamming of a door in the wind an unexpected sound he had feared to save money and he had feared to spend it, even one coin, that which he carried now in his purse for old Charon, when he should make his last passage. He had feared to go, and he had feared to stay. He had feared to move from place to place, feared to change his address. He had feared to be rejected, and he had feared to be accepted. As now so late, after a lifetime of sorrowing rejection, he had come to acknowledge and realize, and was perhaps less jealous than he once had been of his bright star. And thus a complete physical and mental equilibrium should have been his, a state of being between two equal magnitudes or operations or powers. For he had wished to be a well-balanced man, balanced and counterbalanced between opposing influences or interests. And though he had not succeeded, yet were not these necessary confusions better than if there had been no dimmed halo of doubt still lingering in his mind? For had he not sought, ever since Perone's death, some kind of just and equable and beautiful compromise between life and death, some way of denying both, or some way by which they should be eternally united, just when death had separated them forever? Should love recognize the impassable abyss? Mr. Spitzer thought not, that love should build a bridge between himself and death. Mr. Spitzer stretched the cable of his mind, and if it might be said that it was he, Joachim, who had not experienced his death, yet what a pity it would be for all of us, he thought, if we should know that we had lived only through what we had experienced, if we had not lived also through a mistaken dream. So he did not strenuously object, even when he objected. Sometimes baffled by these problems of his shifting identity, Mr. Spitzer would take his only consolation in the fact that there was no real difference between himself and his brother, no breach which time would not remove. An old Dan Cupid, the wise and cherub, the blind god of love, and the opium lady's rain-drenched, sea-swept gardens. There where the fishes slept, there where the sea swept up over the broken statues and life-size wooden chessmen and silver weeds, the weeds drowned under the dark whirlpools, the drowned pagodas, scarcely rising to the surface. 
He, with his bright bow and gilded arrows, arrows of chance, even had he not been blind, blind as a stone, a porous rock, blind marksman, an archer in the eternal darkness, could not have known which was Peron and which was Joachim, or recognized these differences between the living and the dead. For should love recognize these arbitrary boundary lines, these boundary lines moving when Mr. Spitzer moved, or even when he stood still? Joachim had known, and he had probably forgotten. Peron had known, and he was dead the other image drowned in a world of dreams. Mr. Spitzer liked to think that, of course, these differences faded with time, seeming of less and less significance, especially as Joachim had now grown old and had seen in a hallucinatory moment when he looked into a black mirror edged with gold, that his hair was slightly feathered, feathered with white streaks as if he had stood for a moment in the falling snow. And yet was this possible? And as Mr. Spitzer wished to be fair-minded to consider every possibility, would not time have made these differences also greater, as Perone had not grown old, had not suffered these great changes of this terrestrial life, had not lived to see his death, this life which was this continual sacrifice of parts of self, this continual emulation of a lover engaged in some grand tragic love affair? How often when one had erred, the other had been punished, and the punishment exceeded the magnitude of the crime, as the night exceeds the day's dimensions, all familiar things changing their shape and place, as the sense of timelessness, this time's acceleration, comes most often at night. Indeed, it was Joachim who had suffered everything for Perone's sake, even these inclemencies, the winter wind, the freezing rain, the snow crystals driving in his face, each snowflake different from every other, a drop of water crystallized around a grain of wandering stardust, even this remorseful life which was like a prolonged act of ghostly retribution, for that one sin which was not yet of his committing, his self-murder, though it was Joachim who, wishing to cast off this mourning cloak, had sought the grave and the love beyond the grave, that one image of that love which should not change. So now Mr. Spitzer was sad, sad when he thought of his dead brother, tombstone over his brother's grave, a simple marker marking the place in a wild wilderness of graves. The broken sundials where the shadows, like painted shadows, did not move beyond the hour, the leaf-clogged fountains and pebble paths, the dark trees, the shadows of swallows, the winding carriage roads where now no mourners came except Mr. Spitzer in his black cloak, the chipped cherubim sleeping in the long willing grass, the long willing grass growing over his brother's grave, which might so easily have been his own had there been any justice. He was thinking of digging his own supernumerary grave. He was thinking of adding his own tombstone. As for himself, his grief had been diffused, no doubt, having outlived its reason and its object. His grief had settled over everything, spreading like an ink blot over a page of his unwritten most beautiful music, or that music which he had just started. Sometimes the ink blot would seem to form the ace of spades, sometimes the ace of clubs, sometimes the ace of diamonds, sometimes the ace of hearts, or even a duel of clubs, as if it were he who had been the gambler. For though he was not buried, yet he would often feel that he was this dead man walking, continually resurrected by memory, which had made him this great mistake, that he was the stranger to himself, his ideas jostling against each other without that sequence, and that order they should have had if he had been successful in his attempts. He was irritated by the persistence of his faith, for the grave should have been a private place, and no such disorder as he knew, made breathless by his great dimmed effort when he crossed a dark street or turned to cross North Square. But Peron had escaped these mortal consequences, and it was Joaquin who must pay for that great mistake which was not his, and he who must be this old, ruined lawyer who had outlived himself and his sad, buried youth, 
he who must see his own disappointments, that he had never become the great musician he should have been, as he would think at those obscure moments when his mind should have been emptied of thought, as he would think when crossing a fisherman's icy quay, the snow white as a shroud upon the steeples and the black roofs, he would see his own great shadow moving along with him, sometimes as large as the hulk of a ship's shadow upon the darkly moving waters, his high silk hat as big as another roof, and the snow clouds moving across the face of the moon and the earth, a vast barren globe moving through the darkness, moving as Mr. Spitzer moved, as the wind whistled like a mournful train, and he would hear that train whistle and wonder where he was. Sometimes through the curtain of fog there would gleam a fitful star, or great snow owls, their eyes as big as city lamps, would hoot at him, seeming to know his face in the fog, which was the color of starlight in the day. He would see through the parting of the fog the golden capital dome. Ah, oh, why were there no cypress trees in New England? It was a cold climate. How horrible it was to know that he had failed, to know that he had lived beyond his time, beyond the grave. The door was not closed. He would pass as if to reassure himself many familiar places. Cockrell Church, the golden cock upon the weather vane turning in the wind, where he would always tip his high silk hat as if in memory of him. The State House, Parker House, which he was pleased to see, was still doing an excellent trade. An old Beacon House, an old Beacon Hill House, where he once had lived, waiting for his brother to come home, for there had been these twin arrangements, twin stairways, twin fireplaces, twin sets of Italian fire dogs, twin mirrors rimmed by gold, twin harps, twin armchairs, twin parlors Mr. Spitzer had always loved, and how he had loved to wander back and forth between these two parlors, checking and double-checking upon his precious arrangements, to see that nothing should be out of place, that there should be no discrepancy, that not even a flower had lost its petal in one room unless a flower had lost its petal in the other room. And now there was only himself, wrapped around the shadow of his own being. How should he not be himself? How should he not be if he was himself his wandering brother, especially as there were so many people still believing this and thus adding to his mournful responsibilities? In Scully Square, they thought he was a lawyer. In the region of Boston Common, they thought he was a gambler. But by changing a place, should a man change? And who could ever really escape? Who could escape this life if Mr. Spitzer had not done so? Who could escape the wheels of time? Sometimes when he crossed an iron bridge, surprised to see so many ships he had supposed were sunk in the far seas, so many china, clippers, brigantines, sloops, some painted with enormous human eyes, or when he walked along Commonwealth Avenue, walking always against the wind, clutching his hat for fear he would lose not only his high silk hat, for fear he should also lose his head, hearing the dead leaves rattle in the gutters, the inarticulate noises in his windpipe, the honk of traffic horns, the traffic streams going both north and south, or both east and west, or passing at the same street corner, the wooden, purple-faced, paralytic balloon vendor he always passed, sometimes stopping to buy a balloon like a planet tugging at its string, or when in an abstracted mood he crossed the public gardens in a green and glassy twilight, just as the slow city lamps went on, one by one, like the slow stars of a returning consciousness, seeing the billowing swan boats, and the swans, the black swans, quarreling with the white swans, hearing, off in a clouded distance somewhere, the sound of ghostly hoofbeats upon uneven cobblestones, seeing the flying sparks like stars caused by this eternal friction, catching a glimpse of a hooded carriage, black coachman, sleeping in the coachman's box, his purple plume, silver buttons, big as moons, surprised by a sudden rush of glass-walled hansoms, fringe-top surreys, low-slung barouches, and other old-fashioned vehicles, surprised by a loud clangor of church bells, sudden shower of prismatic rain, 
The murmur of pigeons in the grass. Surprised that so many old buildings he had thought were gone were still there. Surprised by the buzz of a bee. Surprised to see so many ladies wearing hobble skirts, carrying handkerchief-sized umbrellas. So many old gentlemen with faces the color of pumice stone, gaunt-faced nursemaids pushing prams, white-frocked children playing ball on a shadow checkered lawn, or when in some other afternoon he walked along the shadowed Brattle Street on his way to see a Harvard professor who might remember him. Almost anywhere, in fact, where he should be remembered, where he should not be utterly forgotten, where there should be no great mistake, yet there would be, for some perverse reason which both disconcerted him and oddly flattered him, this great mistake repeating itself, these incongruous illusions, as of that persistent reality his brother denied, strangers approaching Mr. Spitzer even to this day, strangers stepping out of the shadowed porticos, out of the shadows to ask him, and the saddle whistle of the wind. Who won on the dogs? Who won on the horses? What tips could he give? Had he seen a spirit booking the clouds, or had the clouds disappeared, showing that there had never been a booking? Had he put his money on the nose of the winning horse, the nose as cold as an autumn leaf, or had he lost? Had he touched the horse's bare skull? Had he lost the race of life? But Mr. Spitzer did not know, as he would nearly always attempt feebly to protest. If he knew, what would he be doing here, and how monotonous such questions were, falling like a perpetual drizzle of sunlight-colored rain which streaked the fog of his oblivion, falling like heaven's tears, streaking Mr. Spitzer's cheeks, reminding him that he was once more his brother's substitute, that he had taken his brother's place, or that his brother had never vacated his place, that it was Mr. Spitzer who had gone before him. It was Joachim who had departed this life. What could he say to such crazy people who were influenced only by what they saw or wished to believe? What could he say to himself? He could have described more easily the roof of the Sistine Chapel painted with angelic figures or the tombs of the Medicis, some of which were no doubt painted with golden pawn-shop balls like three moons of memory, or Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark was supposed to have rested, poised on a pinnacle overlooking Russia, or hanging gardens in Babylon, or the hoof of Pegasus striking water in an arid place, or life in an Arab village of the shrouded Bedouins. He could have waxed eloquent as to old Brookline, or old Newbury Port, or old Newport, the vacant and shuttered houses he had never visited. He could have talked of the frigid winters, of the evening dances of the dead hostesses, of the organization of a penguin society, the correct gentleman in formal black and white. Incidentally, he believed that in Newport he was always recognized, although he had been a visitor there only since his death, which none seemed to notice. An old ferryman, seeing Mr. Spitzer in his black cape, would not even accept his coin, shining like a star through the darkness. Did they not belong, the old ferry boatman asked, to the same ferry boatman's union, all their ferries whistling at once as all their shores departed? Mr. Spitzer would merely show his coin, not of his currency, as one might show a passport, for he was going to another world, even though he was only crossing a dark and glassy bay, or he could have talked of chess moves no one had ever tried, or of music no one had ever heard, certainly no living ears had heard, of instruments no one had ever known, but people seldom inquired of Mr. Spitzer's interests, of the stone men upholding the roofs of the houses of the dead, of the stone funeral to faces, the tactless strangers asking time and again not of his unfinished elegy, not of his silent music, the music of the spheres, not what he felt or what was the state of his health, but of the illicit activities which were certainly not of his sphere, the human whirligigs, the sudden windfalls, the blows of chance, the shifts of fortune, the turns of fate, the dice game, how fell the loaded dice, the clicking billiard balls, whether he had recently taken a shot at the old cue ball like a human skull rolling across the green turf. 
questions as to the numbers, rackets, the lotteries, the playing cards, who was his partner in draw poker now, whether he was still shuffling the cards, whether he was still cutting the deck, whether he was still dealing them out, whether life had euchred him. The whirling bird cages, the rattling dice, the spinning wheels, the poker chips, the red and black and the white, the white horse, the black horse, the red rooster, the white rooster, the golden rooster. And the only rooster he knew was that on the top of the church weather vane. There were questions he could not have answered, and it seemed if his life had depended upon the correct answers. For who knew? The wind continually shifted. Who knew how often this old gambler had died, among what crowds he had lost himself, or how many illicit lives had been his to lose in the illegal game of life? The only horses about which Mr. Spitzer knew a great deal were the wooden horses in the merry-go-round, though even these might get loose and run away in the chilly moonlight. Sometimes he shakily thought as he wondered, did they run ever wide in circles? So how embarrassed Mr. Spitzer was to hear such questions, embarrassed even more when speaking with a windy voice, more like his own echo than his voice which had failed so many times. He would hear himself reply and would be startled almost out of his wits, though too polite, too tactful to show his disturbed feelings, his loss of equanimity once again, his embarrassment. He would be startled to find out that he knew what he did not know, doubtless from his wanderings in search of his brother or from his many contacts, both direct and indirect or from reading every morning at the sunlit breakfast table set for two, the black-bordered obituaries of the sports gazettes while wandering, while wondering who had drunk the dregs, or why the old clam digger took so long to return to wait on him, to help him find his other sock, the one which had unraveled. He was simply amazed that he seemed to know, perhaps because of his dead brother, whose circle had been a good deal larger than his own, the vexed histories of so many shady and unpredictable characters persons who should not have crossed his own field of consciousness or memory, which was so seldom of this world. He knew where all the old speakeasies were, though he had probably never visited one in his life. It was a fact, and never would expect the memory of his brother. He knew the old, old-time swing-door saloons with the sawdust on the floors and the brass railings and the baroque ceilings painted with naked women and pot-bellied babies, and the darkened billiard halls lighted by glass flames casting great shadows, in the bowling alleys, much to his chagrin surprise, for he should have known the churches better, and he should have known the graveyards. He knew he had probably met in his wanderings an old billiard hall king who had once miscued and lost the world championship, and had lost the world, due to a fly buzzing at his nose, a fly zooming, a fly landing on the cue ball just as his long stick moved, and had been so upset he rushed out and committed suicide by jumping into the first river he found, drowning himself. His cloak was found upon the shore as his head rolled on. Some could lose but once in life, Mr. Spitzer sighed. He knew who was a great cue ball artist and those and whose head had been used as a cue ball, knocking against the other balls, causing a great commotion. He knew whose head was a lopsided cue ball, knew who rolled the sun, the earth, the stars, and many moons. He knew the screw-twisting stroke and the draw shot and the meaning of scratch, a point made by a lucky kiss. He knew that the only man who could beat Louis XIV at billiards was rewarded by being made the minister of France, carrying a mace like a cane. He knew that the cue stick was sometimes called a baton, which was a mace, sometimes jeweled, sometimes used for breaking armor, sometimes as a magical wand, or if carried sinister-wise, a mark of bastardy and heraldics, or a musical baton when it struck a ball and rolled a ball along. It was doubtless a sign of masculinity. He knew how many points were lost in pocket billiards by missing a cue or having the cue ball go into a pocket like a grave. He knew who was behind the eight ball or who should know his name if he searched his unretentive fleeting memory. He knew the names of those old bowlers who no longer bowled but were bowled along by others or by the velocity of the wind. 
He knew the weight of Thistle Jockey, knew death rode a stumbling nag, not like that swift horse the archer rode through storm clouds. He knew that Martin Luther was a great believer in bowling, which he had probably recommended as an outlet for human aggression and the thirst for conquest. That many tyrants were great bowlers, using human ninepins, that a queen of the desert sands had played billiards to ease the agitations of her restless mind. That Sir Walter Raleigh, like many other men who lost their heads, had played cards with his executioners. Just as many a man had played a game of chess or bones upon the evening before his execution. And imagine the surprise of the bloody executioner, returning after the beheading at dawn to find that the headless horseman on the pale horse had been there during his absence and had made another move, moved to another square, moving his black knight. He knew that he was a playing card with eight pips, like the seeds and moons, and what was a two-spot and what was a three-spot? What was a full house and what was an empty house? What was a broken house? What was the ace of spades, clubs, hearts? What was a two of hearts? What was the queen of diamonds? What was an ace in the hole? Playing cards dropped out of his sleeve. Someone was trying to do him in. He knew, though vaguely, morosely, what was an act of trumping, something about playing a card which takes any card in the other hand. Though if the musician had been asked several years ago, he would have said that it was an angel blowing a trumpet. He knew who had crossed him up, who had crossed his cross. He had found out, much to his sorrow, who was the jack of discs, who was the jack of cups. He knew that sol slalom was not a term in gambling, but in skiing for a pair of flags set up on the fall line that one might ski over the edge of the abyss. Knew who made the longest jump in interstellar space, falling from star to star, taking the longest time. Knew that in, <clears throat> knew that in skijoring, one was pulled along by a horse, and surfboarding by the waves, which were pulled along by the gravitational pull of the moon, the dead moon. Knew a great yachtsman who became a horseman and complained that his slowly speeding horse leaked water from its sides, fought through stormy seas, foundered in the flood, and sails drifting, and he could not reef haul, went down. It really was amazing, old Joachim's subliminary knowledge, how he could know so many of so much of things which had always escaped his knowledge, for he had been so largely concerned with quarrels with rival lawyers, with torts, mortgages, dusty lawsuits, the claims of lost heirs, the restorations of lost crowns, and cases which, although outlawed by time for others, would never be outlawed by time for him. He had learned so much through his dead brother, he supposed, for there was no other explanation, consideration of Mr. Spitzer's own preferences as to love, as to death. He knew a dead flutist, his lace turned upward in the winter grass, his lace as white as the winter weeds, as white as the chalk-colored moon in the cloud. Mr. Spitzer nearly stepped on him, but the earth echoed before he stepped, not afterward. He knew the huntsman was no, who no longer hunted, the white owl who no longer hooted, Old oarsman, who no longer oared, not even the watery dream margined by weeds. Old batsmen, who no longer batted, not even their lengthening shadows. Old acrobats, who no longer tumbled, having already fallen from their high place. Old boxers, who fought no more, not even against themselves. One-eyed boxers, and two-eyed boxers, and three-eyed boxers. Boxers with four hands, four feet. And what was the difference between a heavyweight and a middleweight, a featherweight, a flyweight, a heavyweight, and a lightweight? Knew who wore the featherweight crown for the longest time in history? Who wore it for the shortest, knew who lost his leathers, who was naked as a naked bird. He knew who changed his weight from fight to fight, going from heavyweight to welterweight to flyweight. Knew who now was lighter than the air, knew both the living and the dead, the winners and the losers, those who had neither won nor lost, wrestlers under the green mantle of the earth, locked in a perhaps everlasting embrace. He knew because of his brother a hold a camera on the sports. He knew who had knocked out whom and when and how, and it was possible to seem to be losing the battle of life, 
yet win by a single knockout in the last round by knocking the other fellow cold, cold as a stone, clear out of his senses. Nuhu fought a spurred angel until the angel lost its feathers, its feathers whirling in the wind like the city snow over the black chimney pots. Sometimes the snow was black, falling from a white sky. Sometimes the snow was white, falling from a black sky. Sometimes the snow was black, falling from a black sky. And thus he wrote his blackitude for the black keyboard only. He knew for a spirit voice had told him which player thought he was on a baseball diamond, batting the ball of a glaring midnight sun to the farthest Empyrean, beyond the shores of light, batting the earth beyond the moon, rushing from star to star, knew who had knocked himself out of the starry ring, knew what great contention was fought for more than an hour by continual fainting and false attacks with never a blow from either side. It was declared a draw by the amused, bemused umpire of the fight, who could not decide whether he was dealing with two cowards or two men of exceptional courage. Both were bridegrooms. It was the night before the bridal night. Perhaps there was no bride. He knew who never broke a clinch, who was still clinging to his partner in a long kiss like the kiss of death, knew who hit the canvas 87 times and rose again, who saw the daylight star, the sun and moon, the moon scattering into many moons like lamps, knew who was punch drunk, slap happy, dumb, knew many old fighters who did not know themselves and had water on the brain and wandered back and forth. He knew that when a man hits the floor with any part of his body other than his feet, he is down, and the umpire counts to twelve. Twelve for the shining hours, twelve for the blackened months, twelve for the dead apostles. Mr. Spitzer thought that eight should be enough, seven for the singing planets, one for the silent, silent star, the blackout.